Our Hebrew scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah 49. In the midst of exile and discouragement, the prophet reminds the children of Israel what they could be by stretching their imagination and expanding their story. Hear now a portion of this ancient sermon. Islands, listen to me. Pay attention, you distant peoples. Yahweh called me before I was born and named me from my mother's womb. God made my mouth a sharp sword and hid me in the shadow of the hand of the Most High. The Almighty made me into a sharpened arrow and concealed me in God's quiver. The Holy One said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I had been thinking, I have toiled in vain, I have exhausted myself for nothing. Yet all the while, my cause was with Yahweh, and my reward was with my God. Thus says Yahweh, who formed me in the womb to be God's servant, who destined me to bring back the children of Jacob and gather again the people of Israel. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of, tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel. No, I shall give you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One, to the one deeply despised, the one abhorred by nations, the one enslaved by despots. Rulers will stand when you walk in the room, and court officials will pay homage because of Yahweh, who is faithful, because of the Holy One of Israel, who chose you. As the story of Christ spread across the world and Christian communities began to form, each community began to tell the story through the lens of their own unique culture. Our reading this morning likely comes from the Greek community for whom the logos, the logic, or word of God uh, was very important. It became the primary lens through which they understood Christ, the reason made flesh. So here this ancient blend of Greek philosophy, Jewish theology, and the beautiful poetry. In the beginning was the word. The word was in God's presence and the word was God. The, the word was present to God from the beginning. Through the word, all things came into being, and apart from the word, nothing came into being that has come into being. In the word of life, and that life was humility, humanity's light, a light that shines in the darkness, light that the darkness has never overtaken, the word was coming into the world, was the world, and through the world was made through the word. The world didn't recognize it. Though the word comes in its own realm, the word's own people didn't accept it. 
Yet any who did accept the word, who believed in that name, were empowered to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor urge of flesh, nor human will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and stayed for a while among us. We saw the word's glory, the favor and position a parent gives an only child filled with grace, filled with truth. Of this one's fullness, we've all had a share, gift on top of gift. For while the law was given through Moses, the gift and the truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is the only begotten ever at Abba's side who has revealed God to us. Stage lighting was a requirement for all undergraduates majoring in theater. So when I was a sophomore, I made space for it in my schedule. I wasn't all that worried about it. I thought the most difficult part would be convincing my parents that it was a real class. <laughs> Light seemed pretty straightforward. It was on or off. You could see or you couldn't. In retrospect, this was also pretty close to how I understood God. You knew God or you didn't. You were saved or you weren't. It was pretty straightforward. As it turns out, I was mistaken on both fronts. My understanding was, to quote the prophet Isaiah, too small a thing. Up to that point, the most complicated light control I'd ever been in charge of was a dimmer switch. That semester, I found myself in front of a DMX lighting panel with 40 favors, uh, faders and gels in every color imaginable. And the straightforwardness of it all just kind of started to slip from my hands. There were new dynamics and new nuances that I had to learn to respect. Here are some things I picked up about stage light, sometimes the hard way. Number one, turning on white lights and calling it a day, while simplest, will likely turn everyone on stage into a ghost. Number two, picking a color and deeming it thematically appropriate for the whole show will likely not turn out well either. Blue gels are great, but only if you want your whole show to take place in the dry midwinter. If it's fall, don't be afraid to try an orange or a red. Oh, and while we're on the subject of reds, that brings me to number three. Reds, when used subtly, will boost the intensity level of a scene. When used not so subtly, every scene will give the impression that someone is about to get murdered. <laughs> Number four, learning to use yellows appropriately can be the difference between a bright and happy living room and a cast somehow all suffering from jaundice. <laughs> I could go on, but you get the idea. Light is not a binary thing. There are no right lights or wrong lights, only different kinds of lights that invite us into different places, different kinds of lights that tell different kinds of stories. Fail to respect that, and you'll find yourself in trouble. And whether we're talking about theater or theology, light is a beautifully complicated, wonderfully complex thing. And we don't have to be stage lighting designers to know how true this is. Who hasn't stood on a light bulb aisle and been reminded of their own human frailty? 
What are we after? Soft white, bright white, fluorescent, warm white? Don't even ask me about wattage. It's serious work. Failure to respect the difference between bright and warm white light could make our living room into the waiting room of a dentist's office. And then there's placement. Color and brightness are crucial, that's true, but they don't mean much if the light is not coming from the right direction or shining on the right thing. When you look at lighting theory in film, you learn that putting your lights too close or having them all come from one direction could be the difference between a casual interview or a film noir interrogation scene. Imagine a man in a kitchen taking food out of a refrigerator. It's a pretty neutral action in itself. Having light coming in from one direction would give the audience the impression that it's morning and he's making breakfast for his family. Change the angle, the color, and the brightness, and now he's grabbing supplies for an evacuation to escape an alien invasion. It makes a difference. Light is a beautifully complicated, wonderfully complex thing. And we've only talked about the kind of light you can see. Go a little deeper and things get stranger. At the turn of the 19th century, there was an astronomer named Frederick William Herschel. A native of Germany, Herschel was living in England designing telescopes and cataloging the night sky when, in 1800, he became curious about something else. Herschel had been using different colored filters to observe properties of sunlight, and it seemed to him that each color was letting through a different amount of heat. So he set up a simple experiment to test his hypothesis. On his desk, near a window, he placed a glass prism, which broke the sunlight passing through into a spectrum of colors across his desk. He then placed three thermometers across the rainbow of colors to register the temperature differences, and two other thermometers just passed the band of colors to let him know the base temperature of the room. And when he came back later to check his readings, what he found wasn't exactly what he expected to find. It turned out he was right about different colors allowing different temperatures, and he found that temperature increased from violet to red. But what he didn't expect was that the thermometer placed just beyond red in an area where there was no visible sunlight, it was registering the hottest temperature. There was something hot there, he just couldn't see it. A few experiments later, Herschel was convinced that not all light was visible to the human eye. He found that there was, in fact, a wavelength of light just below or infrared. And thank God he did. Because today, 220 years later, doctors use it for non-invasive body scans. Firefighters use it to find people caught in heavy smoke. Security workers to see, use it to see people hiding just out of sight. Meteorologists use it, geologists use it, archaeologists use it, astronomers use it, and perhaps most importantly, you and I use it every time we change the channel from the blissful comfort of our couch. Of course, soon after Herschel's discovery of light infrared came the discovery of light above or ultraviolet, which we later learned was responsible for sunburn, for vitamin D formation, for chemical reactions that cause some organic substances to glow. And then came the eventual discovery of X-rays, cosmic waves, microwaves, radar, radio waves, broadcast band waves, each a kind of light invisible to the human eye, and each with its own properties and unique life-altering abilities. Light is a beautifully complicated, 
wonderfully complex thing. Mind-bogglingly diverse in appearance and function. Think about it. If you had to come up with a practical definition of light, does light you cannot even see fit into that definition? But it doesn't stop there. Go deeper and things get even stranger. What happens, for instance, when you ask the question, what exactly is light? I am not a quantum physicist. This much really should be clear to you by now. <laughs> but I am about to do my very best to explain, to relay to you what far more intelligent people have tried to relay to me about the fundamental nature of light. Now, the science teacher I learned this from began by saying, pay attention, because if you understand what I'm about to say, you will be the smartest person the next party you go to. <laughs> so what is light exactly? Is it a particle with mass and shape, like dust that we can see with our eyes? Or is it a wave, an energy pattern disturbing particles and making them move like a ripple across a pond, or heat coming off of a fire? It certainly doesn't seem like a particle. After all, if you shine two flashlights together at once, light particles aren't going to bounce off of each other and fly in different directions. But then again, it doesn't seem to be a wave, because if you turn on your flashlight, you're not going to see waves of light radiating out from it at different intervals. Luckily, there's a handy experiment for determining whether something is actually a wave or a particle, and it goes like this. Imagine you have a large square of iron, say eight feet by eight feet, and you cut a narrow slit into the middle of it. The slit is maybe three feet tall and three inches wide. Now imagine that behind that square of iron, there is a sheet of drywall, and in front of the whole thing, we set up a golf ball cannon, and we start firing. Well, we're going to duck, because some golf balls are going to bounce off in all different directions, but other golf balls are going to pass through the slit and strike the drywall on the other side, leaving a line of dents in the drywall, generally reflecting the shape of the slit that you cut in the iron. Because golf balls have mass, and they're made of particles. Are you with me? Now, imagine that we were to take that same square of iron, but instead of drywall, we put a pressure-sensitive plate behind it something that changes colors when we apply pressure. And then we fill the room half with water and we drop a bowling ball in the center of it. Now that bowling ball is going to create waves across the water. And when the waves pass through the slit, they're not going to create a solid line on the pressure-sensitive plate like the golf balls would have, but they're going to create a gradient that is stronger in the middle and fades out to nothing towards the edges. Because we're not sending particles through the slit, we're sending waves. Similarly, if we were to create two slits instead of one and perform those two experiments again, the golf balls are going to give us two lines of dents, but the waves are going to give us a whole bunch of lines going in every different direction called an interference pattern because the waves are interfering with one another once they get beyond the slits. So, this is the experiment that allows scientists to tell definitively whether something is a particle or wave. Scientists performed the single-slit experiment with photons of light and found that it immediately revealed that light is, in fact, a particle. And then other scientists performed the double-slit experiment with photons of light, and it immediately revealed that light is, in fact, 
a wave. That wasn't supposed to happen. But wait, because it gets weirder. Scientists shot a photon of light towards the double slit and found that the photon somehow split apart, interfered with itself, and hit the back wall in an interference pattern, the conclusion being that sometimes, for some reason, light acts like a particle. And then sometimes, for some reason, it acts like a wave. It's called a wave-particle duality. But stay with me, because it's about to get weirder. Trying to better understand what was happening, scientists put sensors on each of the double slits to see which of them the photon of light was passing through. They shot the photon through again, and it struck the back wall like a particle every single time. They took the sensors away, shot the photon again, and they found the interference, interference pattern of a wave again every time. Now, in other words, the photon would act like a particle, but only when it was being watched. That was definitely not supposed to happen. Hundreds of suspicious labs have run this experiment, not just with photons. Labs have used all sorts of atomic scale quantum particles, like electrons, and hundreds of times have come to the same conclusion. When unobserved, they act like fuzzy, decoherent waves. When observed, they straighten up and act like particles. Some scientists started putting subatomic elements through uh, together into atoms and got the same result, and then putting atoms together into molecules and got the same result. They've gotten the same result shooting molecules made up of as many as 810 atoms, changing their core nature based only on whether they were being watched or not. And this has led very serious very confused quantum physicists everywhere into the bizarre position of having to ask questions like, when no one is looking at the moon, is it still there? <laughs> Welcome to the world of quantum physics, of wave-particle dualities, where things are, as John Haldane writes, not only stranger than you imagine, but stranger than you can imagine where all of our certainties and simplifications are reduced to rubble, light is a beautifully complicated, wonderfully complex thing. So when we say something like, arise, your light has come, don't plow through that as though we were speaking of a simple thing. When we talk about the way that light has broken into our world in this season, don't pass through it as though it were a graspable thing or something that does not change everything, as though it were not a dynamic, liberating mystery in which we are daily caught. It is too small a thing, God said of Israel's understanding of the light all those years ago that you should be my servant just to raise up the tribes of Jacob and only to restore the survivors of Israel. No, I shall give you as a light to the nations, to all of humanity, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. The history of the people of God is a history of people who time and again thought they knew what light was what it looked like, 
what it could do in the world and who it belonged to. And then time and again, having their ideas shattered because they're too small a thing. It's a history of learning time and again that this thing they thought they had a hold of was, in fact, holding them in ways they couldn't even conceive. It was too small a thing. When the biblical authors chose light as their metaphor for God, they could not have possibly known how perfect a comparison that was. The season of Epiphany is the season of the Magi following the light. Of Gentile astrologers from the East who, by most Jewish standards, had no business at all with the Messiah. It's a season of learned and respected scholars kneeling down in the dirt to pay homage to a baby in a feeding trough. It's a season when we realize that our idea of light may be too small a thing, and we discover it anew. So, children of light, may the boxes in which you put God, the light, never stop falling apart. May we be ever open to the new colors it casts, the new angles it illuminates, and the new stories it invites us into. May we be ever open to the new ways it manifests in the world and the surprising, counterintuitive things that it seems to want to do. May we ever stand in transcendent awe of its mysterious, ungraspable, non-dual nature, more inclusive and grand than we will let ourselves believe. Like the Magi of the East, may we humbly seek the light, respect it in all of its forms and functions, Walk and live by it until we ourselves become it. The body of Christ. The beautifully complicated, wonderfully complex light of the world. Amen. Amen.